1: 1992, you signed a free agent contract with the Toronto Blue Jays, and everything in your career all came full
0: circle. To have the season go the way it did, getting back into the World Series, that's why we play, right?
1: Game time with Boomer Esiason. This week's guest is 2017 American League Manager of the Year, World Series MVP, and first ballot Hall of Famer, Paul Molitor. presented by GEICO. Major League Baseball managed to complete an unprecedented mid-pandemic season and as a first ballot Hall of Famer and a 2017 American League Manager of the Year, today's guest brings a unique perspective. In 21 seasons with the Brewers, Blue Jays and Twins, he became one of only five players to bat 300, steal 500 bases and amass 3,000 hits. It's certainly my pleasure to welcome the great Paul Molitor. Paul, Welcome to Game Time, it's great to see you. And I just wanted to ask you what you thought of this 2020 truncated, pandemic-led
0: season. You know, 2020, in just so many facets of our lives, there's just been so many ripples to this whole virus thing. And and for the professional sports world to try to figure out how to pull off seasons, I think they tried to do it as safely as they could. You know, in the end, probably the best team won, so that, that gives a little bit more credibility.
1: When you were managing the Twins, I'm just wondering, how do you think you would have handled the bubble scenario
0: that baseball went into for the playoffs? It was just, you know, if, you're, if, if you want to play, if you want to have a chance to use your skills and your talents and compete and hopefully win, that you had to make some extraordinary sac- uh, sacrifices to, to make that happen. And
1: Interestingly enough, Tony La Russa, age 76, is yeah. now hired by Jerry Reinsdorf and the White Sox. When you saw that, what was your initial reaction? I was
0: shocked, to be honest with you. You know, I've known Tony forever and uh, just a legendary career, you know, back in Chicago and Oakland and and St. Louis and all the things he's accomplished. Um, I think part of the surprise was that, you know, in the last handful of years, we've seen kind of a transition to more youthful managers and people in leadership positions. And it kind of you know, bucked the trend a little bit. I I think maybe Houston opened that door up a little bit when they brought Dusty in, you know, after what happened with uh, AJ and their situation down with with the Astros. But, you know, obviously him and Mr. Reisdorf have a tremendous relationship. I think they feel they're on the verge of winning. I'm not sure what happened with Renneria. I thought he did a really Mm -hmm. nice job there and how that thing kind of went down at the end of the year. But I'll have to say that I I just didn't see Tony stepping back into that situation. But maybe he's up to the challenge. Maybe it's something he's thought about. And obviously through their conversations, they thought it was going to be a really good fit and really good timing.
1: You know, you brought up AJ Hinch and, uh, he gets a, a second chance now with Detroit. And of course, Alex right. Cora is rehired by Boston. Now sure. you played against them. You managed against them. Did you right. have any idea back in 2017,
0: what they were doing? You know, I did not. Um, I think throughout my playing days and coaching days and managerial, managerial days, you know, you hear different rumors about different parks, you know, theories and most mostly conspiracy theories about people that had lights in the scoreboard that would light up on different pitches and different things. And, you know, in game, I, I was, I was one of the players that tried to, you know, decipher signs from opposing benches or if you're on second base, that was all fair game, but when I managed in in 17, I, I had no idea some of those things were going on. I'm glad it came to light. I think that we had, have to learn, you know, what's normal, you know, picking up of information during the game, except and and not that includes technology. It was unfortunate. There's been a consequence. Um, I, I really like AJ. You know, one of the smartest guys I've been around in terms of the game and. And uh, I'm glad to see him, both him and Alex, getting another chance as we, as we head into 21.
1: During his run as an All-America shortstop at the University of Minnesota, the Golden Gophers coach Dick Sybert called Paul Molitor, the most exciting player I have ever coached. Now that was saying something at the time since Sybert had also coached Dave Winfield. And when you heard that, Paul, how did that make you feel?
0: We called him the chief, you know. He he was the head honcho of Minnesota for over 30 years in the baseball program. And I knew he had won a couple national championships. Obviously, I was coming off the heels of Dave Winfield's incredible run there as a gopher. And, you know, to be affirmed by your coach as such a young kid, it was, it it instilled a lot of confidence in me for sure.
1: Drafted third overall by uh, Milwaukee back in 1977. You go to Milwaukee, you meet the great Robin Yount. Sure. Uh, what, what was that first meeting like, uh, with Robin and getting drafted by the Milwaukee Brewers?
0: You know, when you get drafted and, and you finally get a chance to sign professionally, it's a, it's a, it's a huge deal. And, uh, you know, I was being the first pick. They brought me down to Milwaukee and, and, uh, I mean, I'm around guys like Robin, ironically, you know, he's a year older than me, but he had already played four years in the big leagues. I mean, he started at 18, so that was kind of different. But you know, to see the other people around—people like Sal Bando and Cecil Cooper—and it, it was just an overwhelming and humble experience to be in the dugout before their game. Before I got on a plane to Burlington, Iowa, the next morning, mm-hmm. and I'll always remember Sal Bando, who was kind of the captain on that team. When, when I was talking to Robin, Robin was a shortstop, and I was drafted as a shortstop. And Sal Bando. Uh, flips Robin a glove and it was an outfielder's glove and he said he better get used to this kid with this guy's gonna take your job next year so you know I was just very sheepish and didn't know how to handle all that but it, it was incredible and you know Robin you know we end up being uh, teammates for 15 years and and still one of my closest friends in the game so it was great to share that time in Milwaukee with him a
1: real testament to who you are as a ball is the amount of positions you ended up playing there's two sides of the
0: coin one is that um You know, the guy's good athlete. You can put him anywhere. And the other one is he's a jack of all trades, but master of none, right? I think in hindsight, Boomer, you know, to play a lot of different positions, you know, it kind of added to the enjoyment. I I spent most of my time in the infield, third base. I did play a little outfield, but I was able to see the game from a lot of different perspectives. Life is filled with pitfalls as well. And, you know,
1: and I read all about you. And, you know, I didn't really understand the story about your cocaine use when you were younger and how yeah. that impacted you and really what you went through to get your life back in order. Sure. Um, what What was the the seminal moment that you had that you realized that cocaine was a major problem in your life yeah. and you had to
0: do something about it? You know, it's it seems a lifetime ago, but no excuses for choices that I made. But you know, the late 70s, early 80s, it was, kind of uh, you know, social rock and roll for athletes and you could choose to what path you want to take. And I obviously, um, I don't have regrets, because I think the things we do help shape who we become. But yeah, it was, it was problematic. I just think that I got to a point where I, I, I realized that it was not only affected me, that's probably down the totem pole a little bit. The people that you love and your game and not taking advantage of your gifts fully that God has given you. It was just a little bit of a revelation and understanding that I had to kind of regain a little bit of control. Paul Molitor loved
1: the big stage of the postseason. He actually batted 418 in two World Series, but he became a national sensation the summer of 1987 when he hit safely in 39 consecutive games, the seventh longest streak in Major League history. Now, when did you start to realize that you were on this streak and when it started to really take note in the media?
0: The personal things that happen through the course of seasons or careers that maybe gain more personal attention. They're all fun and good, but I, I think having played about 10 years at that point, I was fortunate that I I, I could see a bigger picture. You know, it's it's you get into midsummer and into the late later stages of summer, and you know you're still in the pennant race. You go out there and you try to win. And and the fact that I was able to keep it going for about six weeks, I just tried to have as much fun with it as I could. We were winning. I was playing well. I was healthy. And uh, you know, it just turned out to be thirty nine was the number where I, where it was going to end. So you remember the old Ted Koppel Nightline when he'd have that little screen up behind his shoulder? Yeah, of course, yes. Yeah, well, that was <clears throat> I got to be on Ted Koppel's show. <laughs> I mean, that was that was crazy. So it yeah. was it was it was it was a fun experience for sure.
1: I want to take you back to nineteen eighty two, uh, your first World Series. Now the the Milwaukee Braves went to the World Series in fifty eight. So now it's the Milwaukee Brewers, and they right. are in the World Series final. Finally again in 1982, what was Milwaukee like when you guys finally got there
0: to face the St. Louis Cardinals? Yeah, you know, um, I'm sure you had some of this in Cincinnati. We just had a tremendous fan base. Uh, Old County Stadium, you know, was it was a house to the Braves back when they had been in the World Series, but it had been a really long time since they had any kind of a winner, or an opportunity to win. So, you know, it was one of those years. You know, we had a really good team. Uh, we, we made it work. It, Short story was the last day of the season. This is when you know there wasn't wild cards and all that. We had to, we had to beat Baltimore the last day, who we were tied with, to get in. And then we went to play the Angels in a five-game series. We lost the first two games and came back and won the next three. And then we got to a World Series, which we eventually lost in seven games. But you know, I I still think Milwaukee fans. They've had a couple playoff teams since then. They've as of late with Craig Council's leadership mm-hmm. they've been doing fairly well, but I will tell you a lot of the at least older Brewer fans really cling to the memories of 82 and uh, it was a great run unfortunately we came up a little bit short.
1: Let me take you to 1992. You sign a free agent contract with the Toronto Blue Jays. And whose spot are you going to take in the lineup? None other than Dave Winfield. Dave Winfield, yeah. Right. It's amazing. It's amazing. Full circle, the whole thing. It's crazy. Right. And you guys go to the World Series. You're the World Series MVP. You beat the Philadelphia Phillies. I mean, you batted 500 in the World Series, for God's sake. I mean, that must have been where everything in your career all came full circle and it
0: all happened for you. Yeah. You know, I'll try not to get too long-winded on this, but we've talked about Dave a lot. Um, The parallels are incredible. You know, streets of St. Paul, University of Minnesota, we both go to one franchise for a long time and don't win. We move on. We both go to Toronto to win our first world championship. We both go back to Minnesota to get our 3,000th hit on the same day. So, I mean, there's just so many crazy things. But, you know, to get back into a World Series, it had been 11 years since my first one. So obviously you, you cherished it. I think you appreciate it a little bit more. And, um, you know, I just happened to be in a, in a good place and playing well and everything kind of slowed down for me. I was able to, re, you know, just hold on and capture a lot of the visuals that came with that run. And, you know, when I went to Toronto, I it wasn't comfortable at first. I, I was with Milwaukee for 15 years and then to have the season go the way it did and culminate getting back into the world series and, have a chance to fight, you know, to win a ring. It was that's that's why we play, right? You get a chance to yeah. enter that winner's circle, so that's pretty special.
1: That's exactly right. And I'm telling you, people got to go back and watch this performance. I watched it last night 12 of 24, two doubles, two triples, two home runs <laughs> in six games. I mean, Paul, it was a, just a phenomenal World Series. Hall of Fame manager Sparky Anderson once said the following about Paul Molitor He's what I call a winning player, like Joe Morgan, they're just winners. Hawley had a way about him where if you gave him a chance, he could always beat you. Some pretty high praise from a great manager and a yeah. just an absolute legendary manager in Sparky Anderson. And, you know, and I'm thinking about what you were all about as a player. You were about what Dick Seibert was teaching at the University of Minnesota. It was all about the fundamentals,
0: wasn't it? You know, fundamentals were a huge part and a huge reason why I think I was able to kind of uh, – accelerate and get to the big leagues at a relatively young age if you do those things right you know you're never going to embarrass yourself on a field you're going to you know avoid being a type of player who you know beats themselves um and i owe a lot of that to my time at
1: university you know and the interesting thing in 1996 you go back to minnesota your hometown team and you get your 3000th hit what was that night like
0: yeah, you know, I, I, Boomer, I had a lot of injuries when I was young, and 3,000 hit was never really even on my radar. I was just trying to find a way to, you know, play and hopefully win and all those type of things. But the years kept going by, and I kept, you know, tallying up the up the knocks, and finally I got into a situation in 96 when I went back to Minnesota to kind of, you know, be a part of that group that, you know, reaches that number. I mean, it was – I think at the time I, I was like – you know, 18th, 19th player to do it. So it just doesn't happen very often. I had to get 211 hits that year to get to 3,000. And I turned 40 that summer. So it wasn't very likely that it was going to happen. But sure enough, on a very chilly September night in uh, in Kansas City, I was able to get that done. And it was, you know, it was great. Robin Young came in for it. George Brett was there, um, you know, being in Kansas City. Uh, we probably had about 5,000 people there, which wasn't a lot. But, yeah, it was just, uh, you know, you you get into that milestone category and and you realize you got a lot to be grateful for.
1: Yeah, age 39, the oldest player in the history of Major League Baseball to lead the league in hits. You had 225 that year. And I'm thinking, all right, so it's 1996, so we all know what's going on in baseball at this time. And it's the the, the steroids, it's the PED years are getting started. You have never been ever implicated in that. And I'm thinking at the age of 39, the age of 40, the age of 41, and when you're watching Drew Brees and Tom Brady do what they do in their sport, and then you were doing what you were doing in your sport back then, did you ever think about
0: dabbling in any sort of PED? You know, I never did. uh, It never even really came across to me in conversations or anything that I saw. You know, to be honest with you, I was probably a little naive um, about what was going on and how many people were were, were kind of going down that path. I'm glad our game figured it out over time and we we're able to kind of come back from it. Certainly there's a chapter there that's, that's not good for the game as far as what a lot of players did. But for me, no, it, it, was, it was not an issue. Never even thought about it for Do you think the guys
1: that did do the steroids uh, belong in the Hall of Fame, if their numbers bear witness to it?
0: Um. Personally, I, I, I would say no. I think anybody who has been proven to have done that, um, it's unfortunate. It, some guys might get in who did eventually, uh, but no, I, I, I just, I don't see that. I, I, it, I just have issues with that on so many different levels. So, you know, it's been uh, tough for the voters. I wouldn't be one of those guys to try to determine that. I mean, you have great, great players, you know, like Bonds and Clemens and people that were, they're Hall of Fame type players. You know, but having done what they did, it's just made a lot more difficult for these guys in terms of trying to determine how to take that path.
1: Yeah, it's a, t- it's a, it's a tough thing for ex players to talk about for sure, especially Hall of Famers. And, I, and yeah. I appreciate you giving me an honest answer on that one. I'm just going to leave you with this before we come back, and I want to discuss this with you. Little mistakes left uncorrected lead to big mistakes. Who said that? I don't know who said that. You said it. When Paul Molitor made his big league debut with the 1978 Brewers, manager George Bamberger said he had tremendous instincts, and you could see right away he was a talented athlete, not only physically, but mentally, too. He played the game like he had been up here for years. Later, when Hall of Famer Ted Williams was asked what he saw when he watched Molitor's short, compact swing, he replied, I see Joe DiMaggio. Man, I, I'll tell you what. There are so many great things that are said about you, Paul, and I know how yeah. humble you are and everything else. But you know, in the midst of a batting streak, did you ever sure. think of Joe mad uh, Joe DiMaggio and actually ever catching him? You know, a couple
0: reactions to that go um, right. I, I think that having gone through a streak that was 39 games, um, I think it helped me put you know, the 56 game into a little bit better perspective. I, you know, I was 17 games short and it felt like mine lasted forever. So it kind of added to my respect of, of where that record is. And the other little quick Ted Williams story was I, you know, if, when one of the greatest hitters of all time, if not the greatest home of all time, you know, compares your swing to another hitter of all time. I mean, what, what a triangle. So I'm at a dinner in New York. It was the, uh, uh, alumni dinner, and I had never met Ted Williams, and I walk into the back room where the people at the diocese were going to be, and Ted Williams is in there, and Joe DiMaggio's in there, and Johnny Vandermeer is in there, and Ted's talking to these guys, and he sees me, and he gets up, and he comes sprinting over to me, and he wanted to start talking about my swing, and how I did, and what I thought about, it was, you know, I was just like, I had not tongue-tied very often, but Try to talk to Ted Waynes about hitting when he's describing your swing that that pretty much got put me on mute button for a while so you know what that's, I think that's is, my Ted Williams story
1: I was going to say what I think is pretty obvious to all of us is your appreciation for the foundation of the great game of baseball and the players who played it before you and I think this probably goes all the way back when you received your first Babe Ruth signed baseball when yeah, you were yeah. a teenager
0: yeah yeah, I, you know, it's just one of those rare things got, that got passed down to me. I'm not even sure if it's original source, but um, it was something that I don't think I probably appreciated fully when I was young, but I still have it. It kind of spurred me. I'm not a big collector, from, but I, one thing I do like, I have single-signed baseballs from a lot of people either that I look up to or Hall of Fame-type people. And a lot of that that, that was uh, initiated by the fact that I was passed on that Babe Ruth ball when I was in high school.
1: Man, that was great. Our thanks to the great Paul Molitor for joining us today, and to all of you for watching. I'm Boomer Esiason, and we'll see you again soon, right here
0: on Game Time. You remember the old Ted Koppel Nightline when he'd have that little screen up behind his shoulder? Yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was. I got to be on Ted Koppel's show. I mean, that was that was crazy. <laughs> We'll <laughs> be